Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Enrico Kramer of the University of Cambridge to discuss how big data is revolutionizing our understandings of prehistoric societies, laying out shifts in demographics and cultural exchange that occurred with early migration from the Korean Peninsula to the Japanese mainland at the end of the Jomon period. We apologize for the slightly reduced audio quality of this week's episode. Good morning, Enrico. And Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Good morning. So, uh, first of all, I'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interest have brought you there? Right. So, I'm um, a quantitative archaeologist, and I'm primarily interested in applying and developing computational statistical methods in archaeology and biological anthropology, applied in all sorts of different things from say, paleodemography or how to reconstruct cultural transmission. And uh, it's actually interesting. I, I was not initially a method person. I was not interested on... Uh, I was actually very bad at math when I was at high school. Uh, <laughs> what actually drove, drove me into a method was Japanese archaeology. So when I was undergrad, I spent a year as an exchange student in, in Japan and I got really interested in Japanese archaeology, but I wasn't happy on the way we analyze archaeological data. And that sort of pushed me into developing and trying to understand better ways to analyze archaeological data. And that sort of brought me into the methodological side. But the initial push was actually from, from Japanese archaeology. So what were you unhappy about in terms of data in archaeology? Right. So back then, I was already interested actually in demography. And uh, one of the issues I had was if you're counting, say, number of houses for a given interval, um, which gives you a sense of uh, whether there was an increase in population or decrease, you have to actually have a decent chronology. And, and usually these historic houses are dated based on the artifacts you found. And in many cases, this is based on typology. So uh, if you find a lot of fragments, uh, you know, if you find a whole vessel, you, you can sort of reconstruct the, the chronology based on stylistic features. But if you find fewer number of fragments or if you don't find any artifacts, you, you are sort of constrained to a much broader chronology. So sometimes you could say, oh, based on the findings, we can date this house to somewhere between, say, uh, 4,500 and 4,300 years ago. But sometimes you, you, you are forced to say, well, this is Jomon period, which is, you know, nearly 10,000 years long. So if we cannot include that information uh, of the degree of uncertainty we have in these houses, we cannot even say how many houses existed in a given interval, because how do you count those that have larger or shorter uncertainty? So I couldn't basically make even a simple graph of, the, of a count of number of houses over time, because I didn't know, I didn't know how to deal with those kinds of data. So... Back then, I got interested in and in, in found out that criminologists had the same kind of problem. You know, you have crime happening at some moment in time, but you don't know exactly depending on, uh, you know, so let's say you parked your car in the morning at nine o'clock and you, you went and checked for your lunch break. It's 12 o'clock. You don't know when it happened. Well, if you, if you check your car in the evening, you, you know, it could be any, anywhere between nine o'clock in the morning and six o'clock in the afternoon. So, 
you wouldn't know when when you, when somebody stole your car. So it's a very similar kind of problem. And criminologists came up with a very neat way to handle these kinds of uncertainties. So so I said, oh, that's cool. That's something I can I can use in archaeology too. And those are the kind of you know small problems that slowly slowly pushed me towards learning and developing statistical methods in archaeology. Interesting. I didn't imagine there was an overlap between criminology and archaeology, but yeah, very interesting stuff. So in this episode, we'd like to talk to you about the ERC-funded Encounter Project, which you're leading on, a project that investigates the patterns and processes that transformed the society of hunter-gatherers of prehistoric Japan some 3,000 years ago. Could you explain the project to us in a bit more detail and give us some examples of what patterns and processes in particular you're looking at? Uh, yes, so this is a really a big moment in Japan, a Japanese prehistory, because it, it really is a turning point that had a lot of cultural, biological, um, even linguistic consequences, the latter half of the history and, and later on history. So the, the short version of what's happening here is that there is a series of uh, migratory events around the first millennium BC that brought in a, a package of cultural elements, uh, all sorts of things from, say, irrigated rice farming, metallurgy, and etc. And that these traits basically spread across Japan and laid the foundation of formation of early state uh, later on during the Kafun period. But what we're interested in is how this process unfolded. And what we see is actually that this was not something homogenous, and different regions reacted differently to this cultural package. So in some cases, we see an almost immediate adoption of the whole package. In some cases, we see a coexistence of different elements of traits that are brought in by the migrant groups, but those that also pre-existed of the incumbent population. In some cases, we see an adoption, but with considerable delays. We see evidence of a hybridization where you really mix specific elements together and create new forms. So designs. And in other cases, you have full rejection. You don't see a sort of a change in, say, Hokkaido or in Okinawa. And in other cases, you have temporary adoption. So, in, in for example, in, in the Tohoku region, you, you see adoption of irrigated rice farming, but then it gets abandoned and you see a reversion to, to a more hunting and gathering economy. So, what we're interested in, why we see these variations and is this linked to ecological setting? Is this linked to the existing network of cultural contacts? Why we see these different reactions in different parts of Japan? And, and that's the fundamental question that we have in, in the project. And, and we're trying to answer, answer to this question from a variety of different angles. Great. So the time period covered by Encounter is the shift from the Jomon era to the Yayoi era, which we said was about 3,000 years ago where hunter-gatherers were exposed to new cultural influences of migrants from the Korean peninsula and learned what is referred to as the building blocks of early state formation in Japan. So uh, what new cultural elements are brought to the Japanese archipelago and how can we see this change in the archaeological record? Right, uh, so many things really. So of course the irrigated rice farming is one of the, the big things. So it's not just bringing in rice itself, but it's uh, the whole know-how of how to do irrigate. So you see paddy fields, you see toolkits that are associated to uh, rice farming, but we also see, say, new burial customs, different ways to make and decorate pottery. Uh, we see metallurgy, we see different settlement types that you 
PC, for example, noted settlements. That's something that appears during the Middle period. So, really, a variety of different cultural elements, and, and you, you can easily see this in the archaeological record. I mean, the difference between Jomon and Yayopatri are really striking if you if you take especially the most typical examples. But of course, you see, as I said earlier, you see also these transitional forms where you have elements of both. That's the range of different elements that uh, we see. Of course, we, we see those appearances happening together or separately, as I said earlier, and then that's how we're examining uh, these uh, different regional responses. I'm just curious about how you mentioned that in the Tohoku region, you can see evidence of rice farming methods coming in and then a reversion to hunter-gathering. Have you come up with a theory as to why that might be, why there was this reversion? Right. So you see, well, the first thing is that the evidence of farming can take different forms, right? So you can have just a charred grain of rice, entire paddy fields. And, and in the case of Northern Japan, we actually find paddy fields. So they're clearly not just exchanging rice, they're genuinely producing this. And the obvious explanation uh, that has been proposed, but not directly tested, is Northern Japan is at the edge of where you could produce uh, rice. So it's much more susceptible to cooling. So one hypothesis is that you have actually a, a slight cooling towards the, towards the end of the first millennium BC, and that might lead to irrigated rice farming not being that useful technology. Uh, and the other thing to bear in mind is just because you have paddy field doesn't mean that your entire subsistence is based on consumption of rice. So I think what's happening in northern Japan is that rice was part of the diet, but was not dominant element. So it was easier to return to the hunting-gathering economy because they really never abandoned hunting-gathering economy. And in fact, that the same applies to other parts of Japan as well, but I think in the case of Northern Japan, that's even stronger. And so if you don't have a full adoption of, this doesn't apply only to, to Japan, I guess, if you don't have a full adoption of a change in lifestyle to farming, going back is, is, is doable, it's possible. But of course, if you change the entirety of your lifestyle, that'd be harder. And, and one interesting aspect is that, for example, you see moated settlements in Western Japan and Central Japan, but you don't see any moated settlement in Northern Japan. So that kind of social consequences of irrigated rice farming, you know, potential increase in warfare, protection, territoriality, didn't seem to have emerged in Northern Japan as much as in uh, Central and Western Japan. So that might be another key to understand why there was an episode of reversion. Fascinating. Now, this is where things might get tricky for those of us who are unfamiliar with data and algorithms, but can you tell us what kind of big data you use to identify these cultural changes? If it is based on the material archaeological records, then are we missing anything from the prehistoric picture, such as changes in intangible culture? Right. That's, I think that's a great question. So, and it is, it is something challenging. So, so the first thing, of course, is that we have multiple proxies, uh, for any of the, of the claims we, we try to make. So going back to something relatively simple, but still complicated as rice farming, right? So you have all sorts of evidence, but they are containing slightly different kinds of information. So you might have a rice grain. You might have an impression in a pot. You might find these tiny microscopic structure made of silica that you find in plant tissues that are called phytoliths that indicates there was rice, pollen, or paddy fields or toolkits. They, if you find all of them together, clearly that's a strong evidence that there was irrigated rice farming going on. But if you find only certain elements, then 
that becomes harder to, to disentangle just because you find the rice grain. How did it end up there? Is it because they were cultivating rice or they were exchanging rice? So the first thing to bear in mind is that you have to deal with a variety of different proxies that are indicating some phenomena. In terms of what is the kind of data we're looking at, the fundamental question is, is where you find something and when you find something. So where, of course, is fairly straightforward. You know, uh, if you find in northern Japan or central Japan, that's giving you some sort of a signal of where something's happening. When is trickier because, of course, you need to date the material. And, and sometimes you can have direct dating. You can use radiocarbon dating. Uh, sometimes you have something more indirect. So uh, the, the bulk of the kind of data I'm dealing with is to handle particularly the uncertainty related to the chronological sign, because that's, that's the most challenging aspect, because that gives you information of how quickly a specific trait was adopted. Things like modeling the spread of the adoption of a particular cultural element require us to have actually a good chronology of where a certain element was found in a particular place. So there's a lot of analyzing dates. So I, I work a lot with radiocarbon dates and how to deal with the different kinds of uncertainty. The, the tricky question, of course, is how do we deal with something that are less tangible, right? There's different ways, I guess. So the first thing is using proxies, right? So let's say we're interested in whether the adoption of irrigated rice farming in a particular region was delayed because of some sort of a cultural resistance. How do we examine that? How do we test this? So one way is to control for all the other variables and see whether that delays cannot be explained by, say, differences in ecology. So we detrend all the effects and all the possible as explanation. And if we still see, once we statistically control for all these variables, we still see delays, then we can start to argue there's something else going on that cannot be explained by topography or suitability of rice farming. There's something else that is causing the delay into a particular region. And then we can start to argue whether that is some form of cultural resistance. Uh, the other approach is to try to test this based on other proxy that might represent some sort of cultural boundary. So one of the things we wanted to do in the project is to create a snapshot of what it was the pattern of interaction between different communities, German communities, right before the arrival of farming. So we can look at, say, variation, regional variation in pottery design and see whether you see uh, identify a certain reason where you see an abrupt change. So that might be indicative of some sort of a cultural boundary. People would communicate less when you have to cross those kind of boundaries. These might, of course, be linked to specific uh, topographic features. You know, there might be a mountain range or it might be completely independent. It's just representing two different groups of people. So we create a model that describes that series of cultural boundary and interaction. Then we try to explain whether do we see the delay happening exactly in, on those boundary? And once we control for those variables that I mentioned earlier, can we still explain that variation from these cultural boundaries? If that's the case, then maybe, maybe that's the reason why we see certain delays. Uh, if that's not the case, there's something else that might explain. So it's a very indirect approach because that's all we can do. But as long as we have a clear question, so in this case, whether you're trying to explain the delay of adoption, then I think we can start to get closer to this. I'm quite interested by this idea of prehistoric cultural boundaries where there isn't topography that would physically divide societies. What explanations do you have for these social cultural boundaries? Right. Yeah, so th that's actually really an interesting team that I'm interested aside from the context of Japan is how, how you see boundary emerging. So the first thing to bear in mind is that you already find culture variation anyway, 
because it's more likely that you'll engage with some sort of contact with people that are closer to you than people that are far away. So you inevitably see always a cultural climb. So we define boundary when you see a variation that cannot be simply explained by distance. So just to give an example, if I have a village and there's a, another village five kilometers east and another village five kilometers west, if it's entirely based on distance, the amount of dissimilarity between village in the middle and the one in the east and the one on the west should be identical, more or less. But if I see one on the east is very different, but the one on the west is much less different, then you can start to argue there's something else going on. There's much more diversity that cannot be simply explained by distance. And of course, if there's a mountain in the middle, there's a river, then you can say, well, that river is acting as a barrier. But you have other reasons, of course, why you, you might separate out. So suppose that the original group of people that inhabited that region was speaking a particular language and occupied a village in the middle and the village on the west. And there's another group of people arriving later that occupied the village on the east. In that case, the differences exist and it's based on uh, linguistic diversity. So there's all sorts of possible processes, anything from differences in shared ancestry to topographic barriers to, this is probably slightly off topic from, from Japanese archaeology, but there is this paper was published by someone called Axelrod in the 90s, where uh, he made a very simple computer simulation where you have different individuals with a set of cultural traits, and they will engage with some sort of cultural transmission with their neighbor. But what happened is that they would prefer to engage with individuals that are already similar to yourself. And even if you start with a completely set of random traits, once you have this slight bias of preference to engage with someone that is already similar to you, creates a feedback process, and eventually you have a formation of the cultural boundaries. It's entirely based on random processes and that preference to copy from someone who's already similar to you. And that might well cause much of the variation of the emergence of cultural boundaries. It might well be simple chance event that is reinforced over and over time and that might lead to the presence of boundaries in certain locations. So one thing we, we wanted to look and in particular in the Jomong period you see a series of expansion and contraction and different stylistic zones. And one thing I'm intrigued is where we see persistent boundary, where we always see boundaries and where we, we see boundaries appearing but disappearing and they're not much a constant feature. So do those locations where we see persistent boundaries genuinely match up with topography or are there other reasons why we see persistent boundaries? And of course, once we can identify those and we can use that to infer whether those particular locations are the ones driving variation in the speed of adoption of, of the heritage. So... I'm sure this question must hear a lot as an archaeologist, but what ramifications does the study of prehistoric demographic shifts have on us in the here and now? Yes, so so demography, of course, includes so many different processes, right? So if you really go to that almost a dictionary definition, it's really you see demographic changes because they're changing inversely, death rate and migration. And, and I think migration is the fundamental element here that uh, really is timely because one of the key consequences of migration is not just the change in the demographic structure, but also how cultural element uh, gets assimilated between uh, incumbent and migrant communities. And that process is, is something that I think it's in the Jomon Yayoi case is, is, is a great example of this because we see much variation on how this unfolds. And in the same way, we see 
ideas that gets transmitted between migrant groups and incumbent groups in present day and how this generates all sorts of different social dynamics, but also how this leads to a new form of culture is something that I'm, I think it's particularly relevant and timely. So that's the element of the project that has the biggest ramification to present day topics and phenomena. Thank you. And is your methodology of applying big data to understand prehistoric human migration and cultural exchange something easily reproducible in other regions of the world, or is this only made possible through the spectacular record of prehistoric artifacts found in Japan? More generally, why has Japan become a global hub for big data computational analysis? Could you explain that for us? Right, yes. So so Japan is unique in that sense. It's, it's the number of excavations carried out and rescue excavations carried out in Japan is just just incredible. I think in the mid-90s, it reached uh, 12,000 archaeological excavations per year. That's just a staggering number. There are also particular features on how these excavations are carried out. For example, many of the sites get extensive, so you really um, uncover the full extent of large settlement. And that provides you with uh, with a kind of information that, uh, quite right, it's not available elsewhere. So if if you want to, say, reconstruct the model based on number of house counts, I don't think there's anywhere else where you have that much information, that many houses. And and the fact that it actually, you have hunter-gatherers, but they have pottery, gives you also more information, for example, about chronology that uh, elsewhere, if you study hunter-gatherers, you might not have. Why Japan has invested so much in this is, well, partly it was the big development after the Second World War that led to extensive area being excavated. In fact, around certain urban areas in, in, say, in Kanto, you, you find what they call new town areas where you have a concentrated area where they, they decide, well, we're going to build a new town here. So everything has to be checked quickly. So they excavate every single settlement in the area. And that's something that uh, provides so much information. In terms of whether the methods we're developing here can be applied elsewhere, I hope so, because um, it will be, uh, for someone working on method, I don't want to have a method that is not reusable. Of course, certain kinds of analysis works better in, in Japan because for example, the whole aspect of pottery-based chronology, I think, for at least for hunter-gatherer works better in Japan. But if you're, say, applying this method in later periods in other parts of the world, that would work fine as well. So I, I don't think this is something that would work on in Japan. And I am much dedicated to methods that are reproducible, but also reusable. So I do try to, to develop techniques that works even when you have a relatively small sample size and accounts for different forms of uncertainty. You might not get the answer you want, uh, you might get an answer that says we don't have enough information, but at least it tells you yes. So that's the kind of thing I'm trying to develop here. It wasn't a particularly good answer. It's a tricky question. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it is. Uh... Well, thank you for answering my questions. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you are currently working on? Yes. So I'm also in Cambridge. I'm involved into a, a project looking at the uh, spread of buckwheat in Asia. This is a project led by Professor Martin Jones and looks at the plant genetics and the symbiosis between pollinators. Uh, buckwheat is an insect pollinated plant, so it has its own distinctive dynamic and features. I also have different small collaborations uh, that are mostly related currently on, on demographic reconstructions. I have some, I'm doing something in Korea on the, the population decline occurring in the middle 
Roman period and also on collapse of well actually probably not the collapse but uh, uh, the population dynamic in Rapa Nui in Easter Island and how much of that was uh, actually determined by ecological factors. Yeah, so those are the kind of collaborations. Uh, it's, it's a good thing if you, if you work on methodology, you have these opportunities to really uh, work with people in all different parts of the world and asking interesting questions. And sometimes you have inspiration from very different parts of the world in terms of, uh, oh, that's a great question. Uh, I think I can ask that in Japanese context. So that's a great way to handle the data and try it uh, in my context. So I always try to keep those work outside Japan as well. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a very diverse approach. Thank you for taking the time to join me today, and Nico, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure as well. Thank you. You can find a link to Nico's research profile in the description below. Beyond Japan, we'll be taking a brief break over the Easter holidays, returning on Thursday the 15th of April. We will be rejoined by Professor Simon Kainer, Executive Director at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, for a reflective episode on international research post-pandemic. Much has changed in international academic fields as Japanese studies since March 2020 in response to restricted domestic and international movement. Academic institutes, such as the Century Institute, have drastically altered their approach to fostering international research projects with such digital initiatives as this very podcast. Simon will share with us how else these projects have been altered by the pandemic, the pros and cons of such changes, and how he believes future international research will look once we're out the other side. There will also be some advice for budding postgraduate academics looking to navigate their way through the post-pandemic world. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.